You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. I'm Celeste Headley, in for Jen White, and it's time for our weekly news roundup. Well, it's official. We've hit the debt ceiling. The Treasury Department is using what it calls extraordinary measures to avoid a default. But this tactic can only buy lawmakers so much time before the U.S. hits a point of no return. When will that be? And will lawmakers reach a deal before then? Meanwhile, the House committee assignments are out, and there are some controversial figures in some very key roles. Plus, tributes flood in for a music icon, David Crosby. As one of the founding members of The Birds and Crosby, Stills & Nash, he was a voice for generations of Americans. So let's jump in. Anita Kumar is with us, the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Hi, Anita. Hi, great to be back with you. Good to have you, Ali Vitali, Capitol Hill correspondent for NBC News. Hello to you as well, Ali. Hey, happy to be here. And Mario Parker leads Bloomberg's national politics team. Mario, welcome back. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. Let's begin with the debt limit. Uh, Congress now either needs to raise the amount of money that it can borrow or suspend the debt limit at 31.4 trillion dollars. Anita, what are our lawmakers saying about uh, next steps? Well, it's sort of predictable. We've been here before, of course, right? Um, you know, we have Republicans who are saying that they would, they do not want to sort of negotiate, that they uh, they feel like uh, there should be spending along with the spending cuts along with this. And they, this, you know, it's particularly you know, obviously the Republicans are back in charge. Some of these hardline, more conservative Republicans have demanded that, um, you know, lifting the borrowing cap be tied to these spending reductions. But the White House and the Democrats are saying, look, we we don't, we're not doing it this way. We just need this sort of clean proposal that we can just do this and move on and we'll take up some of these other issues later. And so they're at an impasse. And this is an impasse, of course, we've seen before, uh, right? Republicans want to usually tie it to those reductions. And the White House and Democrats often say, well, look, just let's do it the way we have done it in the past. So Sandra in Seattle says, why do we have a debt ceiling? Is it in the Constitution? If it's a law, why haven't we gotten rid of it? Sandra, it is not in the Constitution. But we answered all those other questions during our discussion on the debt ceiling. You can find that conversation in the 1A podcast feed. We also got a comment from Claire on Twitter who says, cut every line item in our spending by 1% annually and stop. Use it or lose it budgets for all departments. We don't have a revenue problem. We have a spending problem. Um, But let me get this debt question from Darla. Um, Darla says, I heard it said that a small number of House Republicans are holding up the raising of the debt ceiling. Aren't all of the House Republicans holding it up? Couldn't anyone call for a new election for Speaker and force McCarthy to bring the debt issue to the floor? Mario, you want to take that? <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. I mean, the the, the caucus, part of the, the caucus that, that gave him the speakership in the first place, it was under the conditions that he uh, play hardball on the debt ceiling and, and, the, and the budget, et cetera, and, spend, and, and enact some spending cuts as well. So he's, what we're saying from McCarthy is him following the orders of a, a loud and vocal uh, part of his caucus. Uh, that's juxtaposed, I think, we should add, against what we're seeing from McConnell and the Senate, who yes, late yesterday gave some optimism that this is all uh, a lot of drama and it'll be sorted. 
Yesterday, we spoke with economist Natasha Sarin, a former deputy assistant secretary for economic policy and counselor to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She explained how taxation intersects with the debt ceiling. There's a lot of talk about deficits and debts and fiscal responsibility. Today, we failed to collect $600 billion of taxes that are owed to the U.S. government disproportionately by the very top, by wealthy tax evaders who aren't paying their fair share the way people who earn salaries automatically are each and every year. If you are really concerned about having enough revenues coming into the government, uncollected taxes that are sitting on the table seems to be first order. So, Ali, we hear a lot about spending in this debt ceiling debate. Are lawmakers also talking about the revenue half taxation? Look, I think that the first thing I thought of when I heard you play that soundbite is the fact that the first thing Republicans did with their new House majority was vote to peel back the extra funding that would have allowed the IRS to bring on badly needed members of their workforce so that they could do more tax enforcement. So certainly the revenue side of this should be part of the conversation. But as it stands right here on Capitol Hill, it's not right now, in part because I think it's important for us to point out Not only has the U.S. never defaulted on its debt before, but this is money that's already been spent. What Republicans are doing in this moment, and I think it's so important that your past listener talked about the idea that anyone could trigger a vote against McCarthy if he doesn't act the way that the hardliners in his conference want him to, is it makes his negotiating position that much more tenuous. He is beholden to the far right flank of his conference, but also has to be able to keep moderates on board who are more in line with Democrats and frankly, most Senate Republicans who say that the debt ceiling should be raised, mostly because if it's not, the results would be so catastrophic for the U.S. economy. Nevertheless, this is the point of leverage that Republicans are trying to move forward with. And I think that one of the things that they have floated is not on the revenue side. Instead, it's on the spending side. There's talk, for example, that maybe McCarthy could broker a cap on discretionary spending for a short-term hike of the debt ceiling. That's one of the things that's being floated here. But it's important to remember, Democrats don't want to negotiate. They think that this is like the bare minimum that lawmakers can do to keep the government functional and the economy afloat. Uh, We got a comment from Sherry who says budgets are moral statements. I question the ethics of using the fear of disrupting people's lives now to legislate on tomorrow's values. Our listeners are surprisingly passionate about the debt limit. Uh, While we're in Congress, let's talk about committee assignments because House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has announced the assignments and many of those 21 conservatives who stood steadfast for quite some time in opposing McCarthy's election as House Speaker... Um, have now been given key positions. And I I wonder, Mario, if you could explain what are some of the big assignments here? Yeah, well, well, yeah, you're you're saying like Byron Donalds, for example, uh, who uh, drew some headlines, as you you all may recall, uh, during that uh, dramatic uh, speaker vote. Uh, He got a plush assignment on the Financial Services Committee. Excuse me. As did uh, Andy Ogles as as well. I think the the spotlight though is on some of the uh, the other uh, hard right uh, uh, members of the McCarthy's party who have gotten plum positions. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene on oversight. Paul Gosar on oversight as well. Just some really uh, uh, really plum positions in, in Congress, yeah. and it really illustrates 
what what some of the deal making that that took place a few weeks ago. So, Ali, uh, Mario just mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar. They were kicked off their committees last year because they made both racist statements and threatening statements. Can you talk about some of the long term implications of some of the assignments, especially Marjorie Taylor Greene on House Oversight? Yeah, that's going to be a really important one, especially because the committees that Americans are probably going to see the most of are the Oversight and Judiciary Committee. And then there's also this new weaponization of government committee that Republicans created as soon as they got the majority. Those three committees are going to be the main oversight and investigatory arms for this House majority. They've already been clear, the chairman of these committees, the members of these committees, that they want to go after key parts of the Biden administration. Of course, they're looking into the new classified documents that were found at Biden's former office and at his home in Wilmington, but that's a new development. They were always going to be looking into things like the withdrawal from Afghanistan, where COVID funding went, and also more controversial items like Hunter Biden's laptop. So certainly these are the committees that are going to have a lot of visibility for the American public. The fact that Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene are going to be on them is important because these are going to be key members that are showcased to the American public. But I think there's also a flip side to to the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar were kicked off their committees, you're right to point out why, which is that Marjorie Taylor Greene made racist and anti-Semitic comments. Paul Gosar made comments against his colleagues. Yeah. But they're about to do the same thing to some Democrats as well. Yeah, and, and since we've been talking about the debt, often these investigations cost m- millions. We've got a lot more news to cover with our guests and with you after this short break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Smartwool. For more than 25 years, Smartwool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because Smartwool believes that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. Comfort for the extreme and the easygoing. Smartwool is here to help you feel good. Now it's up to you how far you will go. Smartwool. Go far. Feel good. Let's go west to New Mexico. Um, Former State House GOP candidate Solomon Pena was arrested this week. Uh, He allegedly orchestrated four different shootings that happened in December. Nobody was killed, but each shooting targeted the homes of New Mexico Democratic lawmakers. So, Anita, what are we hearing from officials about the extent of Pena's involvement in these shootings? Yeah, I mean, they are saying that he was upset and angry that he lost the election and and that he was, um, they're accusing him of basically saying that he was trying to get back at, at Democrats. Um, they There are allegations out there that he wanted this to be even more serious, that some of the people that were involved, the people that he supposedly paid and hired to do this, uh, you know, just sort of wanted to scare them, uh, some of these Democrats, some of these uh, families that are in these homes, but that he actually wanted to go uh, further than that. What we do know is that these houses that he targeted or that he allegedly targeted, one of them included a, a 10-year-old girl who was asleep, a daughter of one of these lawmakers. Mm-hmm. And these, of course, were all four Democratic lawmakers. So, Ali, can you tell us, he was a candidate for state house in New Mexico. How involved, how important is Pena to the Republican Party? How, what is his political history? 
I mean, look, you look at the fact that he ran as a state, he ran it for the state house against an incumbent. He lost 74% to 26%. This was not a close election. Nevertheless, I think that his role in this state party actually speaks more to the larger sense of the rise in political violence that we've seen across the board. And when you look specifically at Republicans, the fact that this police spokesperson is saying that these acts of violence or attempted violence were because this man thought that the election was rigged, that is language that we have heard time and time again from the top of the Republican Party, specifically starting with former President Donald Trump and trickling all the way down to members of Congress here in Washington and then across the country at the state and local level. So this is really, you're watching the the the, the really the spreading of the idea of the quote unquote big lie and the actual ramifications of it, the rise in political violence, the increase in threat levels against people who are running for office and serving in office. Okay, so Mario, let's go further south to Florida. Um, Governor Ron DeSantis is pushing to make permanent uh, the ban on COVID vaccine measures. He said, quote, when the world lost its mind, Florida was a refuge of sanity serving strongly as freedom's linchpin. These measures will ensure Florida remains this way and will provide landmark protections for free speech for medical practitioners. Um, this temporary ban was put in place two years ago. It's set to expire in June. Why, Mario, is he pushing to make this permanent? Exactly. I mean, that's a good question in terms of why he's making it permanent where it, where we're in an environment where you don't see as many of the, the mandates uh, enforced as we did at the, at the beginning of the pandemic. If you view this through a, a larger lens, which is that DeSantis is widely speculated to uh, be eyeing his legislative agenda this session as a launch pad for a possible presidential run, one place that he's stronger than former President Donald Trump, which is his, will be his chief adversary is on COVID. The one time that DeSantis did kind of rap Trump and respond to Trump or even uh, subtly hit Trump was on uh, the lockdowns. He made a comment about he probably wouldn't have locked down. Uh, Trump probably shouldn't have locked down the country at the time as well. If you all recall about uh, a year and a half ago, Trump was widely booed at one of his own events for saying that he took the vaccine. So this is a, a, a way that Ron DeSantis could move to the right of the, uh, one of his uh, chief rivals by using this legislative session and, and proposals like this one. So, Anita, is this within DeSantis's power? Can a governor do this? And would the state legislature in Florida back him? Yeah, I mean, this is something that the legislature, which is Republican, has has large Republican majorities would have to uh, take up in their session later this year. I believe it starts in March. Um, but remember, at the last election, when uh, when he was reelected by a lot, a huge majority, he also got these uh, large, large majorities in the in the state house uh, as well. And so he's expecting a lot of his agenda to really push through. You know, what's really interesting about this is not only is he sort of um, making himself showing that it, he's he's different on on Donald Trump, as Mario said, that you know who counts the development of that vaccines as one of his uh, chief accomplishments. It, you know, back in the beginning, uh, the DeSantis administration was working to make shots available. You know, and the governor talked about how uh, they were quickly uh, distributing it. So he has. Uh, you know, changed that over over the years. Now, he might argue, look, the COVID has changed and the pandemic has changed. and We aren't where we were in the early part of that. But it is interesting to sort of see uh, some of, a, of the shift here uh, from him. So 
Ronda Santos also Ronda Santos also this week banned Florida high schools um, from teaching African American studies as an AP course at one particular one. It doesn't look like it's a total ban yet. Um, Ali, how much of this is just trying to, as Mario said, prove that he is very right wing conservative because of a potential presidential run? So much of it. I mean, when I was down in Florida, 95%. so much of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to put a number on it, but I mean, it's hard not to see it any other way. You know, when I was down in Florida, right around the, the midterm elections for NBC News, I was there covering DeSantis and a bunch of other races. And I think it's really striking as someone who spent a lot of time reporting in Florida, the way in which he has really been atop the remaking of this state as a truly solidly red state. It's true in the state house. Anita was referencing the majorities that he's going to be able to, in his, he hopes to take advantage of with legislation like this on extending basically mandates against mandates. But when he won on election night, I remember being in that ballroom and he called Florida the place where woke goes to die. Right now, being anti-woke means doing a lot of these things on coronavirus, on education, being a culture warrior in these spaces. DeSantis has proven that he can do that rhetorically, on stage, in speeches, but he's also trying to do that legislatively and enacting it in policy in Florida so that he can run with Florida as a micro example of what he might want to take national if he runs for president. Let's go back to the White House. The classified documents drama goes on for President Biden. Tuesday, White House legal counsel answered questions for the first time about this classified material that was found both in his home and in his former office. So, Anita, did we learn anything new from the attorneys? Well, we've learned uh, a little bit at a time here. I mean, what we've now learned is that there are, you know, a number of times, it was not just one time, that they had found classified materials. Uh, What the White House is doing, what President Biden is doing, is trying to really make this uh, different than Donald Trump, Uh, that it's not the same, that these are very different things, and that, you know, obviously Donald Trump is being investigated for something very similar, but they're saying there are a lot of differences here, and... um, that this is just sort of, uh, you know, as President Biden said earlier, you know, there's no there there. This is, you know, we've done everything what by the book. This happened by accident. And we have immediately uh, gone to the Justice Department and gone to investigators and National Archives and, and done everything we need to do, as opposed to Donald Trump, who, uh, you know, there are allegations that he has kept a lot of other classified documents, didn't uh, uh, cooperate, and is also under investigation. Biden also said uh, about this issue, I have no regrets, which is is kind of hard to believe. But Mario, um, NBC News, Ali's outlet reports that he, that uh, Donald Trump um, may be back on Facebook and Twitter. Mario, what is that about? What What is the issue here? Well, a, a couple of things. Uh, a, we we we've haven't seen Donald Trump uh, this politically weak uh, since he, as he likes to talk about, came down the, the golden escalator in, in New York uh, years ago for his 2016 uh, campaign. Uh, so he, he's tried to. He, he's politically weak. He's trying to ramp up his campaign. He's got an event later on this month in South Carolina, which is, in some ways, probably a, a soft reboot of the one that didn't land that well at. Mar-a-Lago uh, in November, in November, and then he—he, he, we know 
as journalists, that it's, it's one of his most powerful weapons is social media. We saw how he would wield his Twitter account to, to get folks, uh, his party, in lockstep, how he would use it to attack enemies as well. So as we speak about Iran DeSantis moving towards the right, as we speak about other candidates that may give him a prime, may give him a, a challenge him in the primary, he's gonna, he has no choice now but to uh, reach for some of his tried and true weapons. We should also mention that in, in a recent interview, he criticized evangelicals for not supporting him in his 2024 presidential bid. Let's move on from politics, though, and, and talk about tech. Tech layoffs have continued this week. Google's parent company, Alphabet, announced early this morning they are laying off 12,000 workers. Um, Anita, earlier this week, Microsoft announced 10,000 of its employees will be let go. That is 5% of its entire admittedly very large workforce. Why are we seeing these layoffs in the tech center? Yeah, it's it's so the numbers are just enormous. Um, you know, they these companies are talking about how this is part of broader, you know, cost-cutting measures and but you're sort of looking at what what's coming here. Why why is that happening? And of course, we talked a little bit earlier about the the global economy, it's a weaker economy, it's volatile right now, but there's also been this changing demand for digital services um, over the years of the pandemic. Uh, you know, there were a lot of these companies that really, really ramped up, you know, hired more people, they were getting more business. And, you know, that's fallen off a little bit as people are going back into their offices, at least some people are. Um, that's kind of changed what the demand is. You know, there's also these looming recession fears that we've seen now for quite some time. Uh, you, you talked about a couple different companies, but there's also been, you know, Amazon, Facebook's uh, parent company, uh, Salesforce. There's been a lot of different companies in this you know, sort of in the tech uh, sphere that have been going through the same same issues. So the tech sector is not the only industry that is struggling at this point. We saw retail sales drop lower than expected last month, according to new census data out this week. This is some bad news, Ali, um, at a time when, as we mentioned, Biden is also getting some negative headlines for classified documents. Is there a good story that the White House is telling about the economy? I think that's a great question. They're trying to tell a good story about the economy because they're trying to show that inflation is ticking down, even as retail spending is slumping. They feel like they are in a recovery period, but that's not the story that people are necessarily paying attention to, in large part because what you're watching happen in the tech sector that Anita was just talking about, few tech companies are impervious to this idea that there could be a recession looming right now. And I think that as we turn in Washington, trying to have at, at a point where markets are bracing on the debt ceiling. Come fall, we'll be having a conversation about government funding. All of this translates into how people feel confident in the U.S. economy. The Biden administration is trying to tell one story, but nevertheless, there are other things. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Documents, scandals, investigations are about to ramp up. It's going to be hard for them to only hit one message when they're going to be facing a lot of incoming over the course of the next year and a half. Well, let's stay with the economy, but turn global. World leaders are in Davos, Switzerland right now for the 2023 World Economic Forum. U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh spoke with Yahoo News from the forum about one of the biggest issues on his mind, which is immigration. When you think about uh, immigration and you think about other countries, in a lot of ways, in the United States, we're at a disadvantage uh, because other countries have ways to, to get import uh, immigrant workers into their into their countries for 
big tech jobs for um, you know working in restaurants, uh, and we don't have that pathway, at least a big enough of that pathway. So Walsh says a labor shortfall is a bigger threat to the U.S. economy than inflation. Uh, Mario, does the Biden administration join Marty Walsh in seeing immigration as a solution to labor shortfalls? I think what what we we're saying from Secretary Walsh is again we we just saw the president a couple of weeks ago visit the border for the first time. It's again one of his uh, weaker spots, and and quite frankly, I mean we've been talking about this immigration debate for years. It's a really really tough issue. It's a thorny thorny issue. So I think what La- what Labor Secretary Walsh is trying to do there is is trying to find the right messaging to get both sides to the table. We've got a divided Congress right now. The 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 argument that you need more workers, that this is good for the economy, is one that I think he thinks would, would, would be a little bit more salient to, to maybe moderate Republicans. And speaking of labor, we have an update to a story we brought you earlier this week. The Southwest Airlines Pilots Association announced they will hold a vote to authorize a strike later this spring. The pilots demand better wages and an upgrade to their scheduling technology. That's after thousands of Southwest flights were either canceled or delayed over the past four weeks. Our Tuesday conversation on the state of America's airlines can be found in our podcast feed or online at the1a.org. Now, this is a good time to remember the singer-songwriter David Crosby. He was a founding member of The Birds and of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. He's also a two-time inductee to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. David Crosby was a leader of the 1960s and 70s counterculture. He opposed the war in Vietnam. He embraced progressive causes. Uh, He also embraced psychedelic experimentation. He has been important to American culture for many, many decades. His music reflects his love for jazz, guitars, alternate tunings, vocal harmonies, and the groups that he played with sold millions and millions of albums, not to mention the concerts that he had throughout the decades, even guest uh, guest appearing on many other people's art albums as well. And so we say goodbye to a legend this week. David Crosby was 81 years old. I'm Celeste Headley. We'll have more headlines to cover right after this. Love isn't lying, it's loose in a lady who lingers. Saying she is lost and choking on hello. Let's talk about the environment. Uh, On Tuesday, President Biden traveled to California to visit areas that were hit by extreme weather. While the situation uh, is still treacherous, we're cautiously optimistic that uh, the worst part is behind. The waters recede, but we'll see the full extent of the damage to the homes, the businesses, and the farms and ranches. And we now, uh, we know some of the destruction is going to take years to fully recover and rebuild. But we got to not just rebuild, we got to rebuild better. 
That was President Biden speaking at a press conference yesterday. Parts of California have been slammed by winter storms and floods. That's been happening since late December. Thousands of homes have been damaged. At least 20 people have been killed. And Biden's visit comes after the White House approved a disaster declaration to focus federal aid on the hardest hit counties. So, Mario, can you tell us what parts of the state did he visit? Who did he meet with while he was there? Yeah, well, he he one of the person he met with, he, he was greeted by Gavin Newsom, uh, of course, who was uh, bandied about as a possible uh, heir to the president the governor uh, once he leaves. Yes. Yep. The governor of California. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that we saw President Biden talk about there and he's, um, you know, just this is what he specializes in, right? He's a very, he, he displays compassion. Uh, he draws on life experiences as well. But he also took a moment to, to point to just all of the rain that California got and the fact that if you're, the climate change is real and it's something that has to be done about it as well. And the disaster declaration, um, Anita, can you talk a little bit about what's included in this? And You know, we have seen a lot of disaster declarations recently as we see more and more extreme weather. Yeah, the FEMA director or administrator was with uh, President Biden, and you'd mentioned that he signed this uh, before. It it basically just frees up additional resources. I think hours before he visited, he'd actually raised the level of disaster assistance. Um, what was striking is is also that more than 500 FEMA and federal personnel were deployed to the state. I think it's a lot larger than people realize. Uh, you know, obviously he went to one particular area of the state, but uh, it has these floods and mudslides and landslides and, and winds have affected, I believe, 41 of the state's counties. So it's it's a large swath. You had mentioned sort of the the death toll, there's also the damage at over a billion dollars. So FEMA will be providing and the federal government would be providing, you know, immediate assistance, but also, as President Biden mentioned, sort of, uh, you know, as they look at the long term recovery as well. This is the second disaster declaration in California. There was one on the 9th. There was one on the 14th. We also had disaster declarations for Washington, severe winter storms, Alabama, Bama, severe storms, Georgia, severe weather. That's just this month. Ali, the, the White House seems not just uh, uh, willing, but kind of looking toward talking about climate. Why? Of course, it has been a top priority for President Biden before he was President Biden during the campaign when I was covering it for NBC out on the campaign trail. Climate policy was a key tenet of the Biden agenda. Of course, since they've had control of the White House and over the course of the last two years, having control of both houses of Congress, they were able to make some specific investments, some of the largest ever made in combating climate change. But it's also part of President Biden's ethos and Mario touched on this, this idea that he is someone who is sort of the empathizer in chief, the consoler in chief. This is part of the job of the presidency to go and to go up in a helicopter, as he did yesterday with Governor Gavin Newsom and one of the other senators from California, Alex Padilla, to survey the areas that were battered by these storms and landslides and floods. This bearing witness and is just as important in some ways as giving the billions of dollars in disaster relief funding that they'll need to actually rebuild. And Biden and the administration 
have tried to do a lot of that as he's traveled across the country doing what presidents often do as he tries to tie it to that larger push on the climate front. There was also a new study released Tuesday that compared eating one freshwater fish from a U.S. river or lake to drinking a month's worth of water contaminated with what are normally called forever chemicals or PFAS. Um, they're called that because pronouncing the actual name of the acid is difficult. Um, so, Mario, the group of chemical scientists found it's technically called PFOS, by the way, which is a type of PFAS. Can you tell us a little bit about these chemicals, these forever chemicals, and why they're dangerous? Yeah, and they're found, uh, sadly, in uh, a lot of the freshwater, inland freshwater places within the United States, the, the Great Lakes, um, et cetera. And these are toxins from uh, fuel that's been uh, transported uh, over the seaways, uh, carcinogens uh, that are in the fish as well, just uh, just an array of uh, really uh, just... Uh, just really uh, terrible chemicals, just to be frank. Uh, When I read it, it was quite jarring earlier this week. Yeah, it's not great news. Um, But how significant are the findings, do you think, of this study, Allie? I mean, I think all of us are a little concerned when we read this as as a new statistic that one freshwater fish eaten or caught is worth a month's worth of water contaminated with these PFAS chemicals. I think this is something that has not necessarily gained a ton of traction in Washington, but we are starting to hear about it more from a policymaking perspective. For example, last summer, the EPA put out a proposal that designated two of the most widely used PFASs as hazardous substances. So that means that there's more transparency around this and hopefully the idea of holding these polluters more accountable going forward, but also just raising awareness that this is something that Americans have to keep an eye out for because these substances can build up over time and they're really hard to get rid of, obviously, forever chemicals. Yeah. We did a show about PFAS in drinking water last August, and you can find that conversation at our website at the1a.org. Our listeners are still thinking about politics, Anita, and I wonder if you could answer a question for Luther Liz from Twitter, who says, hey, News Roundup, can you explain to me why George Santos is still in office? Will his lies catch up to him at any point, or do we just hand him access to power for chronic lies at best and criminal behavior at worst? Yeah, it's a good question. It's something that a lot of people are talking about. I think you saw the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, say he was elected um, by his district. And so therefore, he is there and he's going to get some committee assignments. He got uh, put on the Small Business Committee and and Science, Space and Technology Committee uh, earlier in the week. Um, The thinking there is, of course, that he was elected. A lot of what we're hearing about with him is stuff that came out after the election. So things that people didn't know uh, when they voted. He was voted in. He was sworn in. And uh, uh, here he is. So uh, there has to be some other movement for him not to be there. And and right now there's just not. What we're seeing, though, is a number of investigations, um, you know, into possible crimes, into to uh, to other things. And so we can see sort of what will happen with those, Will what will happen with him. I don't think he's getting a, a huge warm reception on Capitol Hill, though. Um, so it's a question of how effective a, a lawmaker he can be as well. 
And he can't be recalled, which means the voters can't directly force him out of office and, and until the next election. Many of our listeners are still thinking about David Crosby. I want to get some of these comments in. Francine says, David Crosby could be a real jerk, but I can't say I've ever made it through our house without shedding a tear or two. Uh, Deborah says, I have memories of listening to Crosby, Stills, and Nash whilst my hippie mother and boyfriend would dance around to carry on. His music brought great joy and many great memories. We are losing an era. Um, let's talk about tech. Uh, we heard earlier about the tech layoffs, massive layoffs announced at Google and Microsoft, but there's another big tech story that takes us into the courtroom. Uh, this week, Elon Musk went on trial, a civil trial for alleged fraud. Tesla shareholders are suing the tech exec for saying he secured a buyout of the company and he hadn't, and he possibly never planned to. He tweeted in 2018, quote, Am considering taking Tesla private at $420, funding secured. Mario, can you remind us what's at the core of this case? Yeah, if you go back to uh, 2018, uh, Elon Musk, way before he bought it, was uh, a quite pro prolific uh, tweeter. And during that time, he was uh, he was issuing tweets uh, saying, as you kind of mentioned, that uh, that he was he had a way to take the company private. Uh, that of course caused the shares uh, to have a lot of volatility as well. And so now, uh, some of Tesla's uh, shareholders are uh, claiming that he defrauded. The, uh, he defrauded them with those actions. So now, I mean, Elon Musk, uh, he, he's in court trying to he's, he's in court trying to defend himself against this, and he's saying, well, you know, the state of mind, et cetera, et cetera, whether than uh, that it was a malicious or it was he did that on purpose. It had a, a malicious intent, or he did it on purpose. So Anita, a lawyer for the shareholders called Musk a liar who is at fault for his clients losing millions of dollars. What's the the central question here is it whether he was lying? Yeah, I mean it's it's actually kind of interesting. The judge, or excuse me, the 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 courtroom, the the jury can't really hear this, but he's actually uh, this has actually been found elsewhere outside that room that he was found of actually lying um, in a settlement. He was forced to already pay. Um, you know, to to deal with this. And the judge in this case has, has already ruled that Musk's tweet was false and a mm. finding that can be alluded to during the trial without specifically mentioning this other case. So it's it's sort of interesting. Um, you know, what, what Musk's attorney has been saying is that, look, he, 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 Elon Musk believed that he had financing from Saudi backers and that he was trying to take the sex to make this deal happen and that it was, it was his, effort to be transparent that caused him to tweet this, that he was fearing these leaks would come out in the media. And so he thought he would keep people up to date on what was going on. But of course, that is not what happened. And so, uh, you know, it, nothing happened. And, and people are saying that they lost millions of dollars. And so they are, you know, sort of looking at whether, uh, you know, it fueled this the stock, you know, this this change in the in the amount of what this was worth. So that's what they're looking at, and it's been quite interesting. And we expect Elon Musk to take the stand, which I'm sure will gather, you know, garner a lot of attention. 
So uh, moving out of the courtroom, Tesla has slashed the prices of some of its electric vehicles by as much as 20 percent. There are reports they're slashing it by 40 percent in China specifically. According to Reuters, that brings the cost of the Model Y down from nearly $66,000 to roughly $53,000. Mario, what is behind this massive uh, lowering of prices of Tesla's? Yeah, well, we're seeing the next stage of the company where it's uh, ready to start getting into some of the the price wars that are that we're familiar with with the more traditional uh, automakers, uh, where the Tesla is is trying to gain. Uh, Electric cars have become more ubiquitous, and Tesla is now trying to expand its market share there. So you're, you're, we're seeing the maturation of the industry and uh, the maturation of one of the leaders in that industry when we see them engaging in the price wars that we hadn't seen before. So I want to go back to the debt ceiling before we end our roundup, because our listeners are plugged in on this. They want to talk about why we keep coming back to this battle over and over and over again. Rick says, has there ever been a time when we pay down the debt? If we just keep raising the ceiling, why is there even a limit? Ali, can you give our listeners a little bit of uh, context in terms of what can be done about uh, this particular battle so that we don't end up here experiencing deja vu every time the debt ceiling needs to be raised? Yeah, this is a consideration that we heard them talk about at the end of last year, frankly, because there was concern about if the debt ceiling would be able to be raised this time around because of the political realities within the Republican conference that we've talked about. Some of the other ideas that have been floated, though, are getting rid of the debt ceiling altogether or even the minting of a trillion-dollar coin. These That idea specifically will not gain traction up here on Capitol Hill, but certainly there have been conversations about ways that this doesn't just become a can that gets kicked down the road continuously, but something that's dealt with in a more long-term fashion. I do think it's important for us to point out, though, that even as those ideas are talked about and floated, that's probably not what's going to happen here because they barely are going to have the votes to raise the debt ceiling and avert the crisis, at least as things stand right now. Those negotiations are starting, but there's certainly not an appetite on the Republican side to do this in any sort of long-term fashion. Anita, we only have about 30 seconds left, but if this becomes a, a, a real crisis, who's going to own that? The Republicans? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, you know, this is this is why I think that Perhaps they'll come up with some deal because nobody wants to see this happen, both for what will happen to the economy, but importantly, what will happen with politics. Who's going to be blamed? Voters will blame Democrats or will they blame Republicans? I think what we've seen in the past is that everyone gets some kind of blame, right? If they're <laughs> both in charge here and they have to come up with a deal, it's it's everyone's fault that they don't come up with. At least that's what some voters think. Yeah, Congress, you got one job. Anita Kumar is the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Ali Vitali is the Capitol Hill correspondent for NBC News. And Mario Parker leads Bloomberg's national politics team, Thanks to everyone. We're not done with the news today. In fact, we have loads of this week's international happenings to talk about with a new panel right after the break. So stay with us. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. I'm Celeste Headley, in for Jen White. And it's time for the international edition of our weekly news roundup, the time we take each week to break down the biggest stories 
from around the world. It's been almost a year on since the start of the war in Ukraine. Some of the fighting this week has been the deadliest yet. We'll also discuss ballooning COVID cases in China, and we'll wrap up the week at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Joining us for the roundup this week, we have Nancy Youssef from the Pentagon. Nancy is national security correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. Nancy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Joyce Karam is senior news editor at Al Monitor. Joyce, great to have you as well. Good to be here. And from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland this week, Saleha Mosin is senior Washington correspondent at Bloomberg News. Saleha, thanks for being with us, especially from Davos. Hi, Celeste. So the world's elite met at the World Economic Forum in Davos this week, and while COVID-19 Social inequality, digital inclusion, those have all been on the agenda. The discussions have been dominated by climate and sustainability. Wednesday, in a speech on the gloomy state of the environment, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres did some finger pointing. We learned last week that certain fossil fuel producers were fully aware in the 70s that their core product was baking our planet. And just like the tobacco industry, they rode roughshod over their own science. Some in big oil peddled the big lie. And like the tobacco industry, those responsible must be held to account. So, Saleha, a couple things. First, it sounds as though he's calling for those companies to be fined in a big way, but also he specifically called out by name ExxonMobil. Why? Yes, he did. Uh, what we heard from the UN Secretary General was that uh, Exxon had its own climate research accurately predict the pace and the severity of global warming. And what ended up happening was that Exxon went on to dispute those findings, saying that despite that information, uh, the company decided to publicly cast doubt on climate science findings, including UN-sponsored research. So what we have now is Guterres' speech coming at a pretty fraught time. Uh, There's a lot of... uh, conflicts and pandemics and war going on, powerful divides that are just getting harder and harder to bridge. And that's what Guterres was talking about and saying that tackling climate change is sort of part of this huge divide. And he's trying to find political and business will to bring about a faster transition away from fossil fuels, uh, rejecting any plans to expand fossil fuels, and he decided to name and shame Exxon as part of that process. So fossil fuels were also the target of climate activists who were there in Davos. Swedish activist Greta Thunberg and Ugandan Vanessa Nakate spoke at the sidelines of Davos during a session about the climate. Basically, the people who are mostly fueling the destruction of the planet, the people who are at the very core of the climate crisis, the people who are investing in fossil fuels, etc., etc., And yet somehow these are the people that we seem to rely on solving our problems when they have proven time and time again that they are not prioritizing that. They are prioritizing self-greed, corporate greed, um, and short-term economic profits above people and above planet. The agency of the crisis is evident. It's like our leaders are playing games and... They don't see the challenge that is happening. I am frustrated. Why is it so hard for people to understand the urgency? 
Salaha, so there's been a lot of criticisms of, of gatherings like the one in Davos, uh, the COP meeting in Sharm el-Sheikh last year. But the U.S. Special Envoy for the Climate, John Kerry, pushed back. He said, quote, don't judge a book by its cover. Now, you're in Davos, as we mentioned. You have reported on the Clean Green Revolution this week and on European interests in following the U.S. What sense do you have that we could actually see uh, substantive changes, substantive reforms, that something real might come out of this meeting? I think that uh, I don't know that anything will come out specifically from Davos and the World Economic Forum itself. Uh, the forums tends to set the conversation and the tone for the year, uh, elevate which issues should be looked at, and this is obviously one of them. One of the big topics of conversation alongside the climate you know, change and, and the lack of um, change that we've seen from the Davos elites particularly was actually President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. We've heard a lot previously, recently, from European government officials saying that the U.S., uh, it, with this climate bill, is le leaning toward dangerous protectionism that is going to sow some uh, uh, distrust in the economic fellowship that everyone has held on to for so long. But what I learned when I was walking around the economic forum, the Congress Center, and the promenade where everything is held is that even though Brussels is un is putting some pressure on uh, America for this bill, European businesses, the European private sector is actually thrilled. They think that the U.S. green plan is something that uh, is going to boost competition in the private sector globally. And that increase in competition is what is going to be needed to move some of these uh, achievements along, get some of these companies and countries hitting their climate change goals faster. It's going to take that competition. And that's what we're hearing is that the IRA introduced that competition and that the European politicians who are saying that it's a bad idea are looking at short-term political objectives, not the longer-term climate change initiatives. Um, there's always some good news about the environment, like the Energy Information Administration forecasted for 2024 that pretty soon 25% of U.S. electricity will come from renewable sources. But most of the news, not great. This week, researchers found that central and northern areas of the Greenland ice sheet which is one of the coldest and most remote regions of the world, has seen the hottest temperatures in a millennium. The lead glaciologist said there was almost zero chance that anything but human-caused climate change is to blame for the sharp rise in temperature. Can you, before we, we, we end with Davos, Saleha, what are some of the other items besides climate that, that, that topped discussions there? Yeah, besides climate, um, one of the conversations was who is and who isn't there at this global elite party. Uh, no Russians were there. And three years ago, the last time this World Economic Forum was held in the winter, just before the pandemic, there were dozens and dozens of Russian oligarchs that were in attendance. And this year they are, we can see the proof that they have become international pariahs after uh, President Vladimir Putin's invasion. Uh, there were still 116 billionaires that were milling around a lot from the Gulf states, uh, people who have become very, very rich as oil prices have gone up, unfortunately, much to the detriment of a lot of middle class people in the world. The other big talk, uh, point of discussion was, you know, low-level grumble. Where are the Americans? President Joe Biden wasn't there. Okay, sure, presidents don't always attend. 
but there was no vice president. There was no no one from uh, the State Department, from Treasury Department, no no one else from the White House. We had a couple of cabinet s- secretaries attend, but lower level economic officials. Uh, and so the big uh, U.S. breakout star of the week was Senator Joe Manchin. People were flocking to him, business leaders, uh, you know, government officials hanging on to his coattails. He was seen at um, Anthony Scaramucci's wine night on Monday night partying with Senator Kristen Cinema. He was there to fill the vacuum when anyone wanted to talk about the IRA, when anyone wanted to talk about the other big issue, which was the U.S. debt crisis. He yeah. was the only one there with the bigger voice, uh, along with a couple of other senators, to talk about how the U.S. will get its fiscal house in order, will pay off its um, debts, uh, and will do the right thing. But a lot of Wall Street investors and, and industry executives were really worried uh, what could happen this year yeah. with so much dysfunction in Congress with the debt limit. Right. And and we're going to be talking a, a lot. You mentioned the Russians not being there. It's partly because of Ukraine, I assume. We will talk about that uh, later. Uh, Nancy, you wrote this week about U.S.-Saudi tensions easing after American gas prices fell and better than expected midterm election results for Democrats. But there's also heightened concerns about Iran. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found? Sure. I I don't know if you remember, but um, uh, last fall, there was um, threats from the administration. There would be consequences for the Saudi decision to um, not change its productions uh, last year to help uh, alleviate uh, rising gas prices right before the midterm elections. And what we've discovered since then is rather than a policy more towards division, that the administration is walking away from it, that the realities in Ukraine, the political realities at home, and falling gas prices has created the room for the U.S. and Saudi to try to rectify the relationship rather than break it up. And I think it also um, speaks to how much there's a dependency on the military relationship, which I think sustained uh, relations between the two countries, even at a very tense time. And so we just wanted to put a marker down that rather than a, a discussion around consequences, we now see an administration looking to find some way to work with Saudis despite um, growing divisions on, on other parts of their the, the policy between the two countries. Uh, Joyce, I want to get to a story that you've been following in Lebanon, the blast in August of 2020 at the port of Beirut. Uh, that explosion killed at least 215 people. It injured more than 6,000. Entire neighborhoods were destroyed. The cost of the damage has been estimated to be close to 15 billion. Relatives of those who died have been protesting. Can you explain what's going on? Uh, Yes, Celeste. Uh, So we've seen protests uh, this week in Lebanon basically calling for accountability for the port uh, explosion. Uh, We have seen nobody held uh, accountable. The prosecutor who uh, has been been appointed to follow the case has been under a lot of political uh, pressure and the judiciary has not been able to make any progress uh, on, uh, on the case. The pressure is coming, of course, from the political elite, mainly uh, Hezbollah and its allies that are uh, suspected to have something to do with the uh, tons of uh, uh, ammonium uh, nitrate that were stored at the port. Uh, But this comes also at a very precarious time uh, for Lebanon. um, On Thursday, the uh, Lebanese currency hit a historic uh, low against uh, the dollar. Uh, we're, uh, We're seeing, again, 
again, we are looking at food uh, shortages, at uh, people trying to uh, escape in boats and dying in, in the Mediterranean. Uh, so it's a very bad uh, situation compounding uh, in, uh, in Lebanon. It's not at a point what and what we see in Haiti or uh, what we saw in uh, Sri Lanka, but we are uh, moving gradually uh, towards a scenario where we may see a, uh, you know, full-blown uh, collapse. Uh, so this is, in a nutshell, what's uh, what's been uh, happening in, in Beirut this week. What details have we gotten, if any, uh, about the status of the investigation, who might be implicated, who might be at fault? So the investigation did point at political uh, representatives. One is uh, close to Hezbollah, another is close to uh, former Prime Minister uh, Saad Hariri, and uh, the judiciary had uh, issued uh, subpoenas to to uh, these uh, to these representatives, but it it went nowhere because mm. uh, the judiciary is not uh, independent uh, in Lebanon. It is the biggest uh, non-nuclear explosion we've seen since the second uh, uh, world War, and uh, it's, uh, you know, for the families of the victims, it's very alarming uh, that yeah. actually one of the brothers was arrested this week while protesting, while they they have no uh, sense of justice or accountability two years uh, later. All right, let's uh, now take some time to catch up on developments tied to the war in Ukraine. NATO is sending more military aid. Uh, Countries like Britain and Poland and the U.S. have promised to send more battlefield hardware. The German government is complicating this effort a little, though. Speaking earlier today in Germany, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin told reporters, this is a decisive moment for Ukraine and a decisive decade for the world. Russia is regrouping, recruiting, and trying to re-equip. The Ukrainian people are watching us. The Kremlin is watching us. And history is watching us. So we won't let up. And we won't waver in our determination to help Ukraine defend itself from Russia's imperial aggression. So, Nancy, can you explain what it is that uh, the U.S. and other nations have promised to send and, and why Germany is holding up some of these plans? Sure. So earlier this week, we heard from nine nations, including the UK and Estonia, promising more aid to Ukraine. And Estonia in particular, it was noteworthy because they gave so much ammunition, a, a, a real sizable portion of their of their stockpiles. And then yesterday, we heard from the United States that they would give $2.5 billion more in military aid. Most notably, they added for the first time uh, vehicles that are called striker vehicles. They're eight-wheeled. They can hold up as many as 11 people. And the idea is that they would be part of a Ukrainian-created um, armored uh, unit that could move forward and try to take back territory from the Russians or hold territory that they have. What wasn't in there were tanks. And the reason that is notable is that we heard from Germany that it would not permit the export of its Leopard 2 tanks, as they're called, to Ukraine unless Washington agreed to make its Abrams tanks available, which is an interesting proposition from the U.S. perspective because the Germans are now tying their aid to the U.S. uh, in kind providing its aid. The problem is Leopards and Abrams are two very different types of tanks. Uh, The U.S. position is that um, Abrams tanks are 
very hard to maintain. They use, they're built on sort of jet fuel engines. They, um, they move slower. And that to bring in those kinds of tanks could, um, in the long term, be a hindrance to the Ukrainians. Moreover, they're saying that the, the Germany is a sovereign state and they have the right to provide aid as they see fit, independent of U.S. decisions. And so the question around whether Germany would provide its tanks or not has sort of been hovering over this week as Ukrainian allies are saying we're unified in our, in our approach going forward um, as, as they are meeting right now in Ramstein in Germany to discuss the aid packages going forward. And so it's been a lot of confusion about will they or won't they, referring to the, the Germans, and it has exposed tensions with the United States in terms of what is the best way to support Ukraine going forward, as Secretary Austin noted, at what many see as the next sort of inflection point of this war. Let's go back to weaponry. Earlier this week, the British Foreign Secretary came here to Washington, D.C., and he used the trip to justify uh, the supply of Challenger tanks to Ukraine and urge the U.S. to step up its own weapons supply. Tuesday, James cleverly said sending tanks wasn't just the right thing to do. It was a moral imperative for all those supporting Ukraine's fight. Putin should realize that his ambitions will not be realized. We will not let him realize his ambitions. We're defending the UN Charter. We're defending the rule of law. We're defending territorial integrity. We are defending the concept that the powerful cannot just do what they like on the world stage without consequences. This is what's at stake. And those are things that are absolutely essential for us all to defend. So, Saleha, it's now thought 45 people died last weekend when a Russian missile hit an apartment building in Dnipro. What is the Kremlin's strategy here as it appears they, their effort is becoming weaker and weaker? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, the way I look think about it is uh, follow the money. The Russians' uh, uh, federal budget is shrinking pretty quickly. They don't have access to a half-trillion-dollar war chest that Putin had built up in the run-up to the war, war because of sanctions by the U.S. and EU freezing that money, so he can't access that money. On top of that, we've got uh, an oil price cap that has dramatically dropped Putin's oil revenues. So now he needs to find ways to fund the war. And until he can properly fund the war and get his side of the war and get the technology and military uh, fortification that he needs, we will see some, on his side, sloppy attempts that give a lot of big openings to Ukraine to really bounce back. Uh, one thing that we're keeping an eye on here at Bloomberg is uh, looking at whether Putin could raise taxes on his ol- oligarchs, all these Russian billionaires who've made a lot of money on Russian commodities, and uh, see if the government Putin's government can claw some of that back to finance his invasion. So, Joyce, the CIA director took a trip to Ukraine earlier this week. Can you tell us about what happened there? Uh, no, actually, it, this is was a very interesting uh, trip. All the factors that we're looking at, uh, uh, Celeste, are uh, the West is preparing for a long war. Uh, they're looking at what weaponry uh, Ukraine would need to sustain itself uh, for this long war. We're looking at a war of uh, attrition. And the, the Russians, I agree with what uh, Saleh uh, said on the economic front, but at the same time, they're dug deep into this war and 
and uh, they're making some gains uh, in in the east uh, on the outskirts of uh, uh, Bakhmut and in uh, in other uh, uh, towns in that uh, in that uh, region. So uh, uh, the director of the CIA trip is meant to assure the uh, Ukrainians to uh, coordinate on uh, intelligence uh, sharing and to see what weaponry would be uh, possible. The the German uh, veto so far in, in giving uh, Ukraine the uh, the tanks is directed to uh, to the U.S. not delivering the uh, the Abrams uh, uh, tanks, but at the same time uh, we see more reluctance in uh, Europe and in Germany specifically. I was looking at a poll this morning where only 46 percent support support giving Ukraine uh, these tanks. 43 uh, percent object to it. So mm. uh, it's gonna be a lot of um, you know public diplomacy within uh, the Western uh, uh, countries to to keep to sustain the uh, the support uh, for uh, for Ukraine as these attacks uh, become you know more atrocious on uh, civilian population mm-hmm. uh, whether in what you mentioned in uh, Dnipro mm-hmm. and uh, the helicopter crash uh, and uh, what we're seeing uh, I mean the drone footage we're looking at, Ukrainian cities are being uh, totaled in the yeah. Donetsk uh, area. So this will be a long war, and I think U.S. policymakers are uh, preparing, um, uh, you know, the public and the uh, uh, coordination with, with Kiev to, to, that, uh, to that aspect of it. Let's move to New Zealand now. The Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, Ardern shocked many people when she announced her impending resignation. I believe that leading a country is the most privileged job anyone could ever have, but also one of the more challenging. You cannot and should not do it unless you have a full tank, plus a bit in reserve for those unexpected challenges. This summer, I had hoped to find a way to prepare not just for another year, but another term, because that is what this year requires. I have not been able to do that. And so today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election and that my term as Prime Minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February. She was elected in 2017 at the very young age of 37. She became the world's youngest woman head of government. She was also only the second to give birth while in office. Ardern received a lot of praise for her handling of the mass shooting at a mosque in Christchurch in 2019. But that event and uh, being forced to handle the pandemic as well brought a lot of vitriol, even extremism aimed at her. So to my panel today of, of brilliant and esteemed women... Uh, let me go first to you, Saleha. What kind of impact do you think she's had on politics and also the image of female leadership? You know, just the fact that she was she had a baby during her this very uh, difficult, crisis-ridden term as prime minister is inspiring. I also think that knowing when to step aside and not being afraid to say that I don't have the energy and this job requires energy takes a lot. You know, you have to really show that Uh, you understand that that job is actually much bigger than you. And I'd love to see that in other parts of the world, particularly here in the U.S. I would as well. Um, Let's move to China. The Lunar New Year begins this weekend. That's the first since China lifted its strict 
zero COVID policy last month. Millions of Chinese are traveling for the holiday. They're visiting family that they perhaps haven't seen in years. And that's fueling fears that surging COVID cases will grow even higher and spread from cities into remote areas. Joyce, can you explain how dramatic uh, China's current coronavirus surge is and, and how we know if we're getting the real numbers? Uh, Well, we know we are not uh, getting the real numbers because the numbers we're getting just don't add up with what we're seeing uh, in uh, hospitalization, in uh, crematoriums uh, that are full. I mean, uh, the the numbers that are coming on these videos and from uh, independent analysts are much higher than what the Chinese government is uh, is given us, and with the lunar uh, new year, um, you know this uh, this week, and these numbers are expected uh, to surge. The uh, expectation is over 2.1 billion will uh, will uh, make uh, the journey. This is the first uh, 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 new year without um, uh, you know the COVID uh, restrictions. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's. Gonna, we should expect a, a, a surge in uh, in uh, in those cases, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, you know I, I'm not sure how and when will the uh, Chinese authorities will be more transparent about their COVID uh, uh, numbers. But I mean, the last time they uh, they officially uh, uh, reported 25 deaths since uh, mm. December, they later yeah. reversed that. When when you're looking at, uh, you know, independent analysts such as Airfinity, uh, they're saying 9,000 people are probably dying each day from COVID in, oh. in China. So it's this is a big discrepancy in the numbers. And yeah, we should expect those numbers to, uh, to go up uh, in the coming days. Um, so let's move on to some news out of Israel. Tens of thousands there gathered to protest Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's new government's plan to weaken the country's court system. This plan would overhaul Israel's legal system and weaken the country's Supreme Court. And according to Israeli police, at least 80,000 people gathered in Tel Aviv to protest these changes. So, Saleha, um, Netanyahu's new far-right government has been in power for three weeks only. Can you tell us about what their goal here is in trying to make changes to Israel's legal system? Do we know? You know, it's really hard to get a, a full grasp on what the what the plan is. There's a new coalition. They want to remove some of the West Bank outposts. Uh, that's one way Israel is testing this new coalition. Uh, we've seen some broadcast media, you know, some footage from Israeli media showing troops removing those outposts. Uh, his the the new coalition uh, has used that as one of its uh, priorities, uh, but there's still a lot of debate around that, so it remains to be seen. Um, Let's move to Iran, though. A U.S. citizen who's been in prison since 2015 is now on a hunger strike to mark the seventh anniversary of being left behind in a deal that freed other Americans. So uh, Siamak Namazi wrote a plea to President Biden to take notice of U.S. detainees in Iran. Can you remind us, Nancy, what happened seven years ago? Why is Siamak still in Iranian custody? Well, that's a good question. He was um, a, an American businessman. He was operating um, or traveling in Iran, and the uh, Iranians charged him essentially with working with a hostile government, the hostile government maybe the United States. Um, to give you a sense of sort of the cruelty, um, a few years later, his father was told he could visit his son 
was also arrested um, once he arrived in Iran and was only released um, because he was suffering from medical issues. And I think this case is a reminder that so often we we feel such enthusiasm when we see American hostages released, but we have to remember that oftentimes there are those who are left behind because they couldn't reach a negotiation on this particular prisoner. And he now is the longest-held American. Mm in Iran. And his letter is so impassioned, and he says he's conducting this hunger strike to, to remind the United States, essentially, that he's still here. And in this letter, he asked that, um, that the, the president remember him for just one minute um, for the next seven days in a, in, a, in a bid to get his case on the radar of the administration in a way that would lead to his release. And so um, I think this is his effort to remind the world that he's still being held. This is a plea uh, to the administration. And I think it's a reminder of all of us that what, as, as wonderful it is to see hostages released, that, that, that there are so many that we might not know of that are still there that also need um, as an aggressive push for, for, their, for their release as well. Now, in Burkina Faso, at least 50 women and some children were abducted by armed assailant, assailants earlier this month while they were picking fruit. Officials in the West African country confirmed that kidnapping on Monday. A few of the women have managed to escape. Uh, A military junta seized power in September in that country, but it's struggling to stem the violence from al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Uh, Joyce, can you tell us about the the, the sort of powerful um, tug of war going on between these groups in that country? Uh, Definitely, Celeste. We're seeing um, a very volatile situation play out in Burkina Faso, a landlocked country in uh, West uh, Africa. Uh, The violence we're we're seeing is uh, mostly rebel fighters that are affiliated with both uh, uh, Islamic State and uh, and Al Qaeda. And they've uh, since in in the last seven years they've killed tens of thousands and displayed uh, millions, uh, two million people. People, uh, but this violence has seen an uptick in the last uh, in the last uh, week, uh, actually. Uh, so you're you're talking about the armed insurgents who abducted uh, the 50 women, but we also saw an, another attack. It's uh, the mm. army and those affiliated with it have been incredibly uh, weakened. So uh, the violence also and the the increasing clout of uh, terror groups such as ISIS and Al-Qaeda in neighboring uh, Mali and across the continent, the African continent is is also plays a role in that. So uh, it's a complex uh, uh, situation. Uh, Not not exactly sure what can be done to boost the army in uh, Burkina Faso or the groups that are affiliated with it. But it's a fragile uh, situation that we are watching. Nancy, you are a national security correspondent. Can you explain why groups like the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda use mass kidnappings as a tactic and, and whether that's effective? Well, I think in this case, this is a shift for them to now target civilians. And I'm conjecturing, but I think one of the things that they're trying to do is signal to the public how ineffectual their government is in providing security for them. And I also think it's an extension of the insecurity in Burkina Faso. For example, the women who were kidnapped were foraging for fruit because it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And because of the violence we've seen, the internal displacement, which has led to food insecurity, which has led women having to get food wherever they can, to try to fend for themselves, putting them in a vulnerable position that we saw earlier this month there. And so 
terror groups like um, ISIS are exploiting these kinds of weaknesses that they see in an effort to put pressure on those governments and also to signal to the public that their governments are not able to defend them against these rising threats. And so it leads to potentially division internal division, uh, the undermining of those governments, and for terror groups, an opportunity to take more territory, to have more influence, to have more power over over those populations. Um, this week, a Canadian health authority issued new guidelines that call for citizens to limit themselves to two drinks a week. That is down sharply from news coming out in 2011 when low-risk alcohol consumption was outlined as 10 drinks a week for women and 15 for men. Now, the Canadian Authority cited major health risks like cancer, heart disease, and stroke that are associated with even moderate drinking. Saleha, this has sparked a lot of conversations. This is not the Canadian Authority banning alcohol, telling people not to drink alcohol. They're saying limited. Why are people so kind of riled up? Yeah, you know, they're riled up because it sounds like the government has the prescription on everything these days in a lot of corners of the world. Um, at the same time, we have a lot of uh, guidance, uh, research that comes through and it switches, right? Sometimes you hear uh, red wine is good for the heart. Sometimes you, now we're hearing that two drinks is uh, the most and maybe uh, no drinks is the best. So it looks like there's a lot of confusion going on um, as people are trying to sort of readjust to uh, what is good for their health, right? After the pandemic, we're all so focused on what's good for our bodies, what can we bring into our bodies and, and make sure we can uh, survive uh, the you know various pandemics and threats that are out there. Joyce, do you imagine that other countries are also likely to issue new recommendations on alcohol consumption? Uh, uh, no, I can't. Uh, I mean, especially when you look at Australia, France, and uh, even uh, the U.S., where the recommendations are uh, are different, and they're around, uh, you know, 10 uh, uh, drinks a week. But we did see a spike in alcohol cons- consumption since uh, the pandemic, whether it's, you know, in, in Canada and, uh, and the U.S. and other places. So the Canadian government might is or probably is trying to uh, achieve a balance on that. They haven't decided yet, though, if they're going to slap a warning uh, for all alcoholic beverages in, in Canada uh, on, on you know, the ramifications of drinking alcohol. Uh, but, yeah, limiting it to, uh, to, to to drinks a week, I can't imagine that going well, whether in, you know, the U.S. or uh, France or, uh, uh, you know, the United Kingdom or places that are known to drink, um, probably two drinks, you know, on average a day. So, so yeah, yeah. I, Joyce, I can't imagine it going over well in Canada. Canadians drink almost 23 million hectoliters of beer each year, which is enough to fill 900 Olympic-sized swimming pools. So I, I don't know how this conversation is going to go in Canada. I can't imagine well. We have an update on what we were talking about earlier in terms of weaponry to Ukraine. Um, and there is a meeting in Germany. Turns out Western defense officials who are meeting there on Friday failed to produce an agreement for exporting battle tanks to Ukraine. This is a setback, obviously, for Ukraine's hopes of quickly getting a weapon now. That's seen as crucial to its defense against an expected new Russian offensive and an update to that particular uh, conversation. And let me give a response from you, Saleha. What happens now if there's no agreement on this? Does this conversation continue or do you think there might be a different approach to getting weaponry to Ukraine? 
You know, uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky has done a great job of taking his message overseas. Obviously, we saw him come to Washington and speak directly to the American people standing, you know, in front of American flags in the U.S. Uh, Congress. He's also doing the same here in Davos. He chimed in virtually. His wife, the First Lady, uh, came to uh, Davos to make an appeal and remind the world what is needed in Ukraine and why it everyone else in the world should care that a democracy is being uh, assaulted and invaded like this. So I think it's going to come down to the messaging and also maybe just a bigger show of, of exactly how bad things are getting and uh, how much harder and how much farther we have to go to defeat Russia. Uh, let's touch on Haiti quickly. Joyce mentioned that country earlier. The country has had no president since its last one was assassinated in 2021. The Senate in Haiti is supposed to have 30 members. Its lower legislative chamber should have 119. All of those seats are unfilled. Haiti's elected mayors were all reappointed or replaced in 2020. And last week, 10 remaining senators left office after their terms ended, and they leave behind a nation's worth of elected offices that now sit empty after years of canceled elections. Nancy, what might happen? Has Haiti reached a breaking point after not just years, decades of unrest? It's such a great question. The current sort of de facto leader on New Year's Day called for an election in 2023, but didn't spell out the specifics. In the past, there has been Western intervention, um, and that was called for 1.2, and the United States said it was considering it, and yet um, Haitians, despite all their suffering because of the history of interventions there, were not on board with that. And so you can see the buildup of problems, rampant inflation, food insecurity, gang violence, cholera outbreaks, and yet there's not a clear path on how to resolve this. There's not, as you note, a government to do it. There's not a path to elect a new government. And there seems to be uh, a division, um, both internally in Haiti and amongst neighboring countries, about whether outside nations should intervene. And I think it's one of the reasons there is so much concern around Haiti. The trajectory it's on and the lack of viable options to correct course correct and help Haiti um, get out of um, a a spiral that is headed towards a a collapsing state. So, Joyce, is there an appetite among other nations to intervene in Haiti? There is uh, no such appetite, even when you look at the UN peacekeeping uh, forces. The the problem, uh, Celeste, is... As Nancy said, Haiti is looking very much like a failed uh, state. Uh, Gangs are in uh, control. As you mentioned, there is nobody... now from elected who is uh, who is in uh, an office uh, the police is uh, uh, corrupt uh, so uh, we are seeing a uh, a very bad uh, com- uh, situation where you have different catastrophes come together you know there is cholera there is the gang violence the food shortages the economic collapse the uh, the the assassination of uh, political leaders Leaders. Uh, so uh, this is a very scary void in uh, a Caribbean uh, country, uh, but there is no plan uh, neither from uh, the UN nor uh, nor uh, uh, otherwise to to step in and fill uh, fill that void. So Saleha, before we end our roundup this week, can you tell me what kind of international discussions have are occurring over concerns 
about the U.S. debt ceiling. Are people around the globe worried about what may happen in the coming months if U.S. politicians are not able to reach an agreement? You know, I think that right now it looks like it's too far away. Uh, if we just look at global financial markets, they have not really paid attention and made any uh, shifts and no money has moved based specifically on uh, the crisis, uh, the debt, the potential debt ceiling crisis. One question that comes up a lot is if the U.S. Could, every year, every two years has this big fight and the dollar, the U.S. dollar becomes less and less reliable because of this kind of political instability. Does that mean that parts of the world uh, are more encouraged and emboldened to find ways to trade outside of the U.S. dollar? And of course, all of this amounts to what the U.S. is looking like abroad in terms of its power. Yeah. You know, if if our fiscal house and if our politics and uh you know, how, how lawmakers run this country and how we're governed continuously is uh, spilling out into <laughs> scenes of disruption and uh, and rhetoric and, and, you know, playing chicken with American credit, then American power does start to wane. So that's sort of the big question that as we're looking at a, a world a, a order, a world economic order that is fracturing yeah. since Putin's invasion, what is going to happen next? Saleha Mosin, Senior Washington Correspondent at Bloomberg News. Saleha, thank you so much for taking time out for your reporting trip in Davos. Uh, I also want to say thank you to Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, and Joyce Karam, Senior News Editor at Al Monitor. Matthew Simonson produced our podcasts this week. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Gark is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Celeste Headley in for Jen White. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This is 1A.